Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and it's uh, Jobs Friday. Here we are, Friday, May the 5th, and we got numbers for April, and we've got the regular group here to talk about that. We've got uh, Chris, Chris Dorides. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. And Ms. Dinatali, good to see you. Hello, Mr. Zandi. Yeah, thank you. Doctor. So- Oh uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh woo, yeah. God, yeah, we should we should edit that out. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Grand Fair cool. enough. Yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, Doctor D'Antonio too, right? <clears throat> Doctor D'Antonio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got, we got a lot of doctors here. Um, well, it's good to have you all. Uh, I I did testify in the Senate Budget Committee this week on the on the debt limit. How did um, that go? Yeah, how'd that go? Um, uh, I'd say this might be the glass half full in me, uh, less partisan than I expected. Pretty partisan. Uh, you know, a few folks, a few senators really kind of threw a few uh, bricks, but generally I thought uh, it was less partisan. You know, the thing that really I find interesting is um, just how frustrated they are uh, with the budget process. They they hate this. They They really hate this. Well, it's you know, stupid. Well, yeah, that's bipartisan. Everyone yeah. hates. <laughs> you know, and there was some uh, um, uh, Senator Merkley from Oregon spent his you know his time talking about uh, kind of the the history of the budget process, and uh, and the, they all kind of uh, reminisced about how things used to be. <laughs> you know, how they could get things done. Pago, remember Pago? Uh, just really bemoaning the current situation with the debt limit. Uh, so I found that you know particularly interesting. Um, so you think uh, they'll get it together, or uh... I sh- I think so, right? You I left mean, hopeful. Did you leave more hopeful? I, I, than I think I was a, a bit more hopeful. Yeah, that's good. I think a bit more hopeful. Uh, but we're still going down to the wire, right? There's now. Yeah, and I think it's going to take a fair amount of turmoil in financial markets to get there, right? I mean, I think we're going to have some pretty ugly days in the stock market here. You know, we got the we already had the banking crisis situation, which we probably should come back and talk uh, talk about. But you know, this I just don't see them signing on the dotted line to increase the debt limit unless they're under some pretty significant pressure from markets. So I think we're in store for some pretty pretty dark days here. Before that, that hopefully it doesn't do too much economic damage uh, before they actually figure it out. But uh, but we'll we'll come back to that. We should we should talk about that because that's uh, probably we've got two real threats now to the economy. One is the banking unfolding banking crisis, and which we have been talking about, and now the debt <clears throat> limit is front and center, and we should talk about that as well. So we'll do that. But before we do, let's talk about the job numbers for the. Uh, for the month of April. Uh, Dante, do you want to give us the rundown? Sure, I can do that. Um, I think more than anything else, if you if you just looked at the, the top line number in April, you get a little bit of a misleading picture of, of what's going on in, in the labor market. Uh, added 253,000 jobs and the unemployment rate ticked lower to 3.4%. Um, but I think in, in both of those cases, there's some you know, sort of obvious signs of softening underneath the data that's, that's there at the top line. Um, in the case of payroll employments, there were big downward revisions to the prior two months of data, um, totaling almost 150k. Uh, the three months—that's pretty big, right? That those are pretty, pretty, 
significant downward revisions. Biggest revision if you combine both months since December of 2020, and that was kind mm. of a month where employment declined. Um, so certainly among the largest downward revisions since the pandemic started. Um, mm. The three-month average is at 222,000. Now it was 345,000 just last month prior to revision. Mm. Huge swing in terms of what we think trend job growth looks like. Um, in terms of industry detail, there wasn't a whole lot that was noteworthy. I think construction and manufacturing both turned back positive uh, in April after declining in March. That's you know, probably a positive sign there that things aren't completely uh, falling off uh, in goods producing industries. Temp help is another one where we weakness continues and you know, is likely a sign that you know, certainly softening is, is likely to keep moving uh, as we go throughout the year. Uh, temp help is down something like 50,000 jobs now in the last three months. Um, and typically a, a bellwether of the you know, broader weakness in the labor market to come. Can I ask that quickly on that one? Is that demand or supply? Is it that they can't temp uh, companies can't find people to place, or is it because there's just less demand for temp help? Or both? Fair, I think it's a fair question. I, I think up until this month, I would have said it was likely demand because we were you know adding lots of folks to the labor force every month, and supply didn't seem to be as big of an issue. Obviously, this month that that pattern changed a little bit. So my guess is it's probably a mix of both. Hmm. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's okay. Um, on the you know, wage growth front, things were a little bit less optimistic. If you're you know sitting at the Federal Reserve, you know, wage growth had been trending more favorably in recent months, and then we got a you know 0.5% gain in April. Year-over-year wage growth, uh, according to average hourly earnings, is now you know 4.4%. Uh, we got a read from the Employment Cost Index last week that also was not overly optimistic. You know, still has wage growth around five percent year over year. So certainly, I think a little bit more uh, negative news on the wage growth front than we were expecting. Um, and then from negative the in a weird way. Uh, negative in a weird way. You know, negative for yeah, bad, not necessarily negative for consumers, I suppose. Um, right, strong for consumers, but if it's too strong, that means hard to get inflation back down to target, and therefore higher rates. Got it. Yeah. I was wondering, do you ascribe any uh, mix issues to the strong growth there? Or, I, yeah, there wasn't. I mean, we had strong Expl growth. We're, can we're you explain that? I mean, what's motivating that? So, this is average hourly earnings in the employment report, and it can be influenced by the mix of jobs that are being created. If there are a lot of low paying jobs, that'll bias the all else being equal, the wage growth down. And if you get a lot of high paying jobs, the converse in this month, you got a lot less leisure and hospitality jobs, which are low yeah. wage. So maybe that, I think that's your motivation, right? That was, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And certainly the biggest gains were in healthcare and in professional services where you know, wages tend to be higher. You got fewer jobs added in leisure and hospitality. So, you know, I think it certainly could be a little bit of a mix there, but after we got you know, sort of 0.3% the last few months, seeing that that half a percent increase is, is not ideal, you know, even if there was a little bit of mix involved in that. Um, on the household survey side, obviously the unemployment rate ticked down, but for the wrong reasons, right? We had seen strong labor force growth you know, over the last several months, and now the labor force actually pulled back just slightly uh, in April. I, you know, average labor force, labor force growth is still quite strong. I'm not sure that it's anything to really sort of read into in terms of a, a change in trend about labor supply. Um, but employment measured in the household survey was pretty weak this month as well. It was only about 140,000 jobs added, uh, according to the household survey. 
Um, I would say there just wasn't a whole lot noteworthy on the health school survey side. Things you know, sort of improved, unemployment rates falling, but it was mostly for you know, the wrong reason in the sense that the labor force was a bit weak. Do you, this is, I, I know this is unfair, but I will be highly impressed if you, if you look at the unemployment rate to the second significant digit. Do you do that? Uh, I do sometimes. I did not look today yet to see what it oh, was. Oh, I'm so curious whether it was 3.44 or 3.45. You know, it wasn't 3.45, I guess. Then it would have been revised up. I mean, it would have been rounded up to 3.5. But Or was it, you know, 3.38? Does anyone know? We can do that calculation here while we're, while we're talking. Okay, while we're chatting. It was 3.39. Yeah. 3.39. So yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So it wasn't, okay. All and right. the same with wage growth. Yeah, wage did growth. you just do that right now, or did you chat GPT? Because as you're no, prone, I just did sure it. Prone to do. You, did you chat GPT? Hey, chat GPT. Take. You, I, I wonder if I'm you not, could do that. I'm not chat GPT in over here. No, you're not chat GPT. No. Um. So you just calculated that fast? That was that actually yeah. by itself was pretty impressive. That, Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's lowest since uh, summer of '69. Is that the? <clears throat> Isn't there like a the song summer 69 oh, that was the reference yeah you got it oh i did who sang that song uh, brian adams oh brian adams yeah brian adams yeah, yeah for you sure you have to add that to your uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah playlist yeah. i'm definitely gonna listen to that this afternoon that's a great song yeah but and I think, think about the unemployment the rate and think about i think it was 69 it was right around 3.4 yeah right right okay uh, Dante, anything else you want to call out? I, I, I noticed average weekly hours are stable. No change there. Nothing to write, write home about. Uh, any other, any other, other, I don't want to take anybody's statistic for the game, which we will definitely play. And I'm sure some of these data in the employment report will be part of the game, but, uh, anything else you want to call out? Yeah, the only thing I would say, and I don't think I'm stealing anyone's stat here, the diffusion index, which I think I had called out a, mm. a month or two ago, it, it's still weak. Um, and actually, the it looked like it had rebounded last month, and now with revisions, it's it's been under 60 now for three months in a row, uh, which is the first time that's happened you know, since the pandemic. Really. Can you explain that yeah, for the listener? Yeah, sure. The diffusion index measures the essentially the breadth of job creation. So it looks at the you know the share of industries that are adding jobs versus the share of industries that are losing jobs. Uh, and so a diffusion index of 57 means that's you know essentially 57 percent of of industries at the detailed level are are adding to jobs and 43 percent are are losing jobs. It's not quite that simple because there's industries that aren't changing. Obviously, that gets split in there too. Um, typically, a diffusion index you know once it gets south of 60 and starts heading towards 50, that is usually consistent with job losses as opposed to job gains. So you know we had been well above 60 historically high you know in in 2022. Um, and it's come down quite a bit over the last year. Um, and certainly you can have a diffusion index between 55 and 60 and still have, you know, sort of steady job gains. And that's sort of where we are right now. But I think it's something to keep an eye on. If we see that continue to creep lower, that would be a signal that you know, job losses could be on the horizon. Yeah, on the breadth, I was actually impressed that some sectors like how like a construction added jobs, manufacturing added jobs. Financial services added jobs. Now, now banking lost jobs, but insurance increased. So, at kind of at a higher so-called NAICS level, higher in industry level, uh, it was actually impressive. You know, all the positive signs that I saw. Yeah, agreed. Uh, almost perplexing. Almost think I'm almost thinking. Well, we're going to get more revisions. 
when this is all said and done. So it's that, you know, that 253,000 probably isn't 253,000 when it's all said and done. Be my guess. Could be. Close. Would that be your intuition? Yeah. I mean, based on what we yeah. saw month in terms of revisions, I wouldn't be surprised. To see them wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Marissa, let me turn to you next. Uh, so you you heard the rundown. Anything, any color you want to add to any of that? Uh, you know, generally speaking, how do you view the employment report in the context of, uh, you know, an economy avoiding recession, but also in the context of inflation and and, and what the Fed might do next? Um, I, I agree with Dante's take. The headline looks stronger than I think some of the underlying detail is. The household survey is certainly not as strong as the payroll survey. The labor force declined. The participation rate didn't move. The employment gain on the household side was much smaller. And those big revisions in the past two months have me wondering you know, if we're going to see more of these big downward revisions and perhaps this is overstated. Kind of what we've been expecting to see, you just keep expecting sort of the bottom to start following, falling out month after month, and it just doesn't really happen. Um, so it's still certainly a tight labor market, but take that in account with the jolts data that we got this week, um, with some of the other data we have on layoffs, and it's very clear that the job market's cooling. Jolts being job opening labor turnover survey. Right, right. So we saw a big decline in the number of job openings. We saw a decline in hires. Um, so it's it's consistent with the cooling job market, but nothing catastrophic. So it's good that it's cooling seems to be doing so slowly. The wage growth numbers from the the uh, payroll survey, I was just taking a look by industry. And I do think it is more of an industry mix, that half a percentage point increase that looks very strong over the month. If you look at some of the industries like um, leisure hospitality and retail, where wage growth has been very, very strong over the past couple of years, it was pretty weak. So I think it is more of a mix of the kinds of jobs that were added over the month. Okay. So so generally speaking, job growth is still solid, strong, but slowing and probably slowing a bit more than the, the headline yes, number. I, here I think suggest. so. I think okay. so. Yeah. Chris, do you agree with that characterization? I do. I do. You the do. revisions, yeah. I, I, I certainly agree with Marissa and Dante that the revisions give me pause, right? To, when looking at that top line, 253,000, it sounds great, but good chance right. that it comes down. Right. Anything else in the report that you think is important to call out? Uh, I, I, we see good uh, good, re- good results across the demographics, assuming those hold as well. So it's, again, that's that's favorable. It's indicating it's not just in a few key sectors um, where you're seeing some some of this growth. So that's that certainly would be a positive. Yeah. It looks like the markets, I mean, the stock market and the bond market are viewing it relatively positively there's a lot other things going on obviously like yeah regional bank stocks and that's bouncing up and down and all around but uh it feels like market didn't had no problem with the report is it is it so what do you think i mean do you think what does this mean for monetary policy do you think i, I think markets are anticipating that the fed rate hikes are over that if you look at the futures market for Fed funds, the rate the Fed controls, 
the the increase the Fed put in place on Wednesday, the quarter point putting the funds rate over five percent. That's the end of the story. That's the so-called terminal rate, the highest rate is going to get in in the cycle. And then markets seem to be anticipating looks like rate cuts in the second half of the year. Uh, they kind of digested today's numbers well. I mean, I've seen nothing but green on the screen up to this point in time. That could change, obviously, but you know that's the case. So it feels like markets feel pretty good about this and what it means about it's consistent with the idea that the Fed's going to end its rate hikes here. Does that is that a, a fair interpretation? I would say so. I think market okay. is discounting some of these top, right? If you just took the report on the surface, then you might think, oh, still lots of strength, that 0.5% right. average hourly earnings, that would cause an alarm bell. It would have caused an alarm bell a few months ago. Um, but I think given all the other issues and the fact that there are these revisions and potential mix issues, I think the market's sussing that out. Yeah. Okay. It just feels like to me, the labor market is uh, moderating very gracefully here so far. Uh, we're, we're getting, unemployment did notch down 3.4% of the month. But it was 3.4% in January. It basically has gone nowhere for about a year. It's been hovering around 3.4, for a year. And, you know, we're seeing a kind of a normalization in, in all the underlying aspects to that. Uh, to that. Yeah. Hiring is normalized. Uh, it feels like layoffs are normalizing. They've, they've been incredibly low. And now you saw the unemployment insurance claims are weekly average is what 240 250 something like that which is pretty consistent with where you would see it in a well functioning economy quit go back a year ago it felt like everyone was quitting their job quit rates are still i think maybe a little bit elevated but you know <clears throat> not that much up more elevated it just feels like everything is kind of normalizing in a in a reasonably graceful way even wage growth i mean you know with that rate of that low unemployment you might have thought, well, we're we're beyond full employment, therefore wage growth would accelerate. It wouldn't decelerate, but it, it's still too high, no doubt about it. And it maybe not coming in as fast as the Fed would like to see it if they could write it on a piece of paper, but it feels like it is coming in reasonably gracefully. Does that and I think actually Chair Powell, Fed Chair Powell said something to that effect in the press conference after um after the the monetary uh, the FOMC met and they and they raised interest rates, and he he says he doesn't think recession is going to occur. And one reason for that is this kind of normalization that seems to be happening in the labor market uh, feels like it's all coming together. Am I being? I know I am, but I'm, I'll ask: Am I being too sanguine, so, or or not? I mean, Chris, I like the crashing too fast. I mean, I think you know, if anything, there's signs that you know, sort of the slowdown is is getting slower. You know, you mentioned claims; they rose a lot in February, January, February, but now they've basically sort of stabilized around 240,000. So it certainly doesn't look like you know layoffs are accelerating at this point. Um, yeah, we got the downward revisions to job gains, but even if job growth was at 150,000 instead of 225,000, I think we'd still be totally fine with that. So yeah, the fact that job gains are slowing is is exactly what we want and expect to happen. So I think I think there's a lot of room on the downside yet for things to go you know further south before it's a big concern. I think the the real question is are are things slowing fast enough, and you know, are they slowing fast enough that the Fed won't 
keep raising rates. And that, in my mind, is the biggest question moving forward. Yeah, right. Chris, any pushback there on my sanguine picture I just painted for the labor market? No, if this, is, if this is the optimistic ver- part of the podcast, you know, I'd, I'd agree with all. I'd, I'll, th- I'll even throw in uh, another factor that gives me some optimism or makes me. Oh, okay. I'm all for that. Uh, Go ahead. Fire away. Uh, small businesses, small business formation applications for small businesses continues, you know, very, very Mostly. strong. Uh, it's, How timely um, is that data? I know that's from IRS. That's mm. based on the EIN, the employment. It's weekly, right? So it's, oh, it's uh, weekly. I've checked oh, yeah. it in a couple of weeks now. So maybe yeah. I go back, but in my last, my last read it, we were still above uh, 2019 levels in terms of weekly application. So someone, you know, somebody's out there still seeing opportunity. <laughs> and right. that's promising just in light of tightening credit conditions, right? If, if people still feel confident enough to go out and try to create a small business, then they must be, presumably many of them are getting credit from somewhere. So that's also a good sign. Yeah, yeah, at least so far. I guess that's the risk, right? If the tightening right. standards is coming, right? And the regional banks, especially the small banks, are primary providers of a lot of that small business credit, right? That could be the... Mm-hmm. the but uh, so far, it, you're yeah, saying so there's no sign that that's crimping growth in yeah. businesses. People are still... Entrepreneurs are still out there. They're still mm-hmm. sensing opportunity. They're still willing to fill out an application. So, Yeah. That makes probably uh, a lot of laid off tech workers. I, I like this. I like this game. Everyone's got to say something nice. Yeah. This is the, this is the thumper principle. Don't say anything. If you can't say something nice or don't, don't say anything at all. What is, what's the thumper principle? Don't, don't say anything. Well, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah from if you Bambi. can't say something nice, don't say Oh, that's it. Yeah. Say that. What is it, Marissa? If you can't say anything, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's it. That's it. It's something to live by. Yeah. All right. I got one. I got it. But that's not why people listen to our podcast. No. no. (laughs) (laughs) But I think they need some cheering up, maybe. Uh, Yeah. The last last couple of weeks have been kind of brutal. Yeah, that's true. We'll get to the brutal stuff in just a second. But (laughs) one, one other positive thing in the employment report for me was you mentioned labor force down in the month, no doubt about it. It fell, but it's been up strongly in recent months and year over year labor force uh, is up 2.7 something million people. You divide by 12, that's 225, 230,000 being added to the labor force, you know, every month in the past year, I keep coming back to this, but that, that's a lot. That's, that's you know, consistent with the job growth, which is good, right? The labor market, by that measure, isn't getting any tighter. Uh, but how can we be at full employment in labor force grow to that degree, wage growth decelerate? It, it doesn't add up to me, right? I mean, <clears throat> feels like 3.5% unemployment is pretty close to, is consistent with full employment, not, and you listen to other economists in the Fed, they say, no, 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 it's 4%, but how do they, why, why do you think that Dante, do you have any view? How can you, do you agree with me? It feels more like three and a half, doesn't it? I mean, I agree with you. It doesn't, it certainly doesn't feel like we're well beyond full employment, given everything we know about what's happening in the labor market. So yeah, I think it's, it's getting harder to argue that full employment is 4% when we've been at three and a half for a long time now. It's not like it's been a month or two. It's been you know most of a year at this point. And wage growth is certainly not accelerating 
and we continue to see labor supply picking up. So I, I just, yeah, I think it's hard to buy the argument that we're well beyond full employment at this point. Yeah. Marissa, uh, Chris, any pushback there? I mean, are we all in the same? I mean, I, 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 I think it's been well beyond, well below 4% for a long time prior to the pandemic. I mean, even prior to the pandemic, we had a very low unemployment rate and wage growth wasn't that high, right? It was, low. I mean, it was, it was yeah. consistent with low inflation, right? Too, yeah. Right? I, yeah. I, I mean, so I, I don't. You don't see it either. No, I don't see it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, Chris? No? Yeah, yeah I, I'd agree with that. Um, yeah, it would. Okay. I mean, the wage growth is above equilibrium. So maybe we are a bit, you could argue that we're a bit beyond, but um, it's not screaming. It's not accelerating uh, to Dante's point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's turn to a couple of those issues that are, you know, more dark, uh, you know, threats uh, to, you know, what's going on here. The banking crisis, we've been talking about uh, that, uh, you know, quite a bit. Chris, any update there? I mean, I know you watch the data very carefully. I mean, one thing that I find a bit spooky is the regional bank stocks are still under a lot of pressure. Uh, I won't name names, but they're, you know, they're out there. They're up today, I guess, but, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if that's a trend, but it, it just, after all of the government support here, the step stepping in and guaranteeing the deposits of folks with uh, deposits below the insurance limit and above, the Fed's bank term funding program to provide liquidity to the banking system, uh, the very aggressive resolution of troubled institutions by the FDIC, a pretty muscular government response. I, I, I'd been hopeful that that was it, that the crisis was, or at least the acute phase of the crisis was over. But I'm, I'm a little nervous about that in the context of these bank, un, bank stocks under a lot of pressure. Uh, what do you think? Um, how how worried are you about this, or do you think we're this is just short sellers looking for an opportunity yeah. and they'll get wrung out? Uh, yeah, that's where I was going to go. I think there's, I mean, it's all psychological at this point. The balance sheets of these banks actually are still pretty good for the most part, right? Obviously, there are issues there in terms of uh, marking down uh, the value of bonds or C potential CRE issue credit credit issues in the CRE market, but. Taken all together, still lots of capital. These banks are fairly well run. And I see more of a, the psychological and the speculative nature of this feeding on itself, right? You have the short sellers in there. They bring down those uh, those stock prices. Then the depositors start to get nervous. There are real implications if, you're, you know, if your equity value goes down. So uh, it can feed on itself and depositors could flee. But um, I don't know. So I think we're still in the... In a, uh, a gray zone here, in terms of that self-fulfilling prophecy uh, continuing to occur, and although the government has been robust in its response, it's still been on a pretty much on a one-off basis. So there's plenty of anxiety still out there uh, among investors and depositors. That you know what I'm perplexed by, and maybe you've got some insight here, is you know the bank term funding program I, that's yeah. that's what the, the fed calls it they they that's this facility they established uh back in mid-march when things were unraveling and this allows banks to borrow cash from the fed using their more their mortgage and treasury securities as collateral but the, the twist here is valuing that collateral at par meaning 
not at the current market value, which is a lot lower because of the run-up in interest rates. Because that the securities they purchased have coupons, interest <laughs> rates that are well below market value, and therefore their value is a lot lower. And there has been some meaningful borrowing. Last I looked, it was 80, 85 billion outstanding mm-hmm. in that program. And uh, the Fed recently, I think recently or, or maybe regularly, releases the names of the banks that are using that facility, how much they're borrowing, what percent of their liabilities, you know, their total funding is coming from that program. And you look at that list, it's it feels like the uh, uh, you know, tailor made for those short sellers to go in yeah. and go after those banks. And moreover, the banks know that. And it seems like the stigma of, of going to that facility is so high, I would think at this point, that they are very reluctant to go to it, which exacerbates their funding problems. So can't do you, do you have any insight here? Why would the Fed, maybe they have to do this? I, I don't know. Do you know, do they have some kind of regulatory or legal requirement or is this voluntary do you have any sense of to that disclose, to disclose? There's, other, there are other programs where they disclose but it with, it's with a lag right it's so after the i fact, think so right? like the discount window right yeah that's right um i just so find I this know. so bizarre that they would yeah. be i guess know. you have these competing theories right or forces on the one hand you want to be transparent and by being transparent you assure the depositor or the investor that this bank is well run. You know, you, all, all, all cards on the table, look, uh, everything is there. But then on the other hand, you're right, there's the stigma. If you're the only guy going, right. if you're the only one going to this facility, right? Um, it sends a signal as well. Yeah. Um, I it, guess what I, they should do is have all the banks, you know, JP Morgan, everyone should go. Should borrow at least something. Kind of like during the financial crisis. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's what they everyone made. Get- All, everyone go. Yeah. Right. Huh. Um, so, so your sense is though that this is uh, uh, short sellers, other speculators, kind of driving the, the stock prices down. That the fundamentals here are, you know, obviously the banks are under a lot of pressure, but they're fundamentally in good shape because they've got a, a lot of capital and they got the government support now. Uh, and that at some point here, uh, that is what prevails. That investors say, "Hey, you know, these banks are pretty solid. These bank stocks have been, gotten driven down to such low levels that this is an opportunity." So, value investors, so to speak, come in and shore up this uh, the the bank stocks, and we don't get into this kind of doom loop where bank stocks go down. That spooks depositors who flee the bank, who then cause the bank stock to go down further and you get right. into this kind of self-reinforcing vision cycle. That That's your kind of sense of things here, that that's what's going to happen. It is, um, but there's definitely risk there, right? Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm saying it's effectively saying there's going to be some type of short squeeze here that, um, you know, the shorts are going to go down, uh, driving things down, but then you do have another class of investor and, and depositors say enough, this, you know, I'm fine. FDIC is covering me. And they they don't worry about it anymore, and the prices start to shoot back up. But in the meantime, things can get out of control, right? They can they can feed on themselves pretty quickly. So, yeah, right. Do you think that the government has some role to play here to stop this if this does become a downward spiral? I mean, because it sounds like what you're saying is this isn't warranted by fundamentals, right? And if banks just keep falling. And the government has to come in and insure all these uninsured deposits. I mean, where does it end? I got a few ideas. Christy, what do you think? 
Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I guess to the question, the basic question, yeah, I do think um, government has a role to play here. If they let this get out of hand, they're going to have to pay a bigger price later on, right? You could go all the way to a bank holiday if, if it really mm-hmm. comes down to it. Um, so I think uh, speaking forcefully, you know, with confidence, right, that, that certainly is the, the first thing to do here. Uh, then we can consider the broader, more blanket um, dep- uh, guarantee of, of, of more accounts uh, by the FDIC just to quash any concerns here. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if you let this, if you let too many of the dominoes fall, then they will start to really fall in on themselves and need to avoid right. that. Well, the first thing I do is I lose that list somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, oh, that. Oh, yeah. Where's that list? I can't find that list. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that uh, and, and come back, you know, a month later with the yeah, list. Yeah, or, or release it with a lag or a long lag or something. Exact the mundo. That's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd, say, I'd say at least a month <laughs> lag. <laughs> uh, second, I, you know, I, I would. And I, I'm I'm not trying to understand all the unintended consequences of this, but I would seriously consider uh, not allowing short selling of of banks. You know, kind of sort of what happened during the financial crisis because the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, I think 800 banks, uh, there were 800 banks that uh, short sellers could not short for a period of time because we, they had a similar kind of problem back in the financial crisis where we're getting into that kind of doom loop I just described. And then I, I, you know, I think we really need to take a look at deposit insurance. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm increasingly of the mind. And again, here I got to think about it more deeply, and there might be more unintended consequences than I, than I fully appreciate. Uh, but I, I consider putting deposit insurance on all deposits, particularly business deposits, uh, and that's where you have a lot of uninsured. Those are big deposit accounts, uninsured, but businesses are using them. To make payroll and and just operate their business and and I don't really see deposit you know the, the logic for uh, not having deposit insurance on all deposits is you want the big depositors to be careful where they put their money which bank they put their money in and that by so doing disciplines the bank to not take un un uh, toward risk but I I just don't think. That happens. I don't think depositors are really paying. They're operating their businesses, their households. They're not. They're not paying attention to the. Is that a good bank, a bad bank? And they don't have the ability to judge that. That's really on the shareholders, and the debt holders uh, of that bank, the the other creditors, not the depositor. So, particularly in a world where uh, people can move money instantaneously, and you've got social media egging people on, you know, just fanning the the fear. And uh, in that context, I'm I'm not really sure, you know, we want the same kind of deposit insurance system we've had in the past. We have to pay for it. You know, you got to pay for the deposit insurance. The banks have to pay for it. And if the, you know, they have to pass that through in the form of lower deposit rates or higher loan rates, uh, you know, I I get it. But I think that makes a lot more sense than this artificial 250K. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I've got to think about that more carefully. Uh, Chris, on the fallout. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say clearly on those transactional accounts, like the payroll accounts from businesses, right? That you're right. You're, you're yeah. just, it's just transact. They're not 
looking to they're not, they're not looking for banks. yield in in a uh, bank. no and they're not and they don't have time to study the the, the bank uh, balance sheet right they're just operating their businesses right i wonder does this increase the uh, the uh, the logic of a central bank digital currency i mean if you had a cbdg less you wouldn't have Banks. Presumably, deposit right. runs, right? I mean, well, you wouldn't have banks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Fill in the blank. I'm just saying, all else being, I, I'm not a fan of, of the central bank digital currency, but feels like this might be an argument. You know, one argument at least that that might be have some value. Can you um, explain what that is? Uh, b- basically, your deposit account sitting at the Fed, not not in in the bank, uh, not in the not in the banking system. Uh, kind of, sort of, what the the Chinese, I think, now do. Uh, lots of different concerns about it. One is just privacy. If you're deposit, if you're doing business with the with directly with the Federal Reserve, the government has access to your financial information. Do, and do we really want that? I'm not sure. You know, but we should we should have a podcast on CBDG. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll do that. We're already um, pretty close with these money market funds. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Structure, right? That's yeah. Well, I don't, do you want to explain that? That's a little complicated. But That's a little bit yeah. in the weeds here. But the, yeah, you have these money market funds, right? Traditionally, they invest in all sorts of um, short-term assets, commercial paper, treasury securities. Um, there's also a reverse repo structure, which I won't get into, but essentially um, it's a loan to the uh, to the Fed, to the, to the Federal Reserve, right? So you have these funds that go into the Fed, they get a, in return, they get a bit of yield. Right. So if you have this money market fund that only had this type of structure with the Fed, essentially you don't have the FDIC insurance cap that you're talking about because the Fed is going to pay, right? There's no no question of uh of uh, not being not getting your your, your funds back. Uh and you're getting uh, some yield there from the uh reverse repo structure. So Effectively, if you are a depositor, you can circumvent the bank. You don't have to go through a commercial bank. You go into the money market fund and you're getting you know, full coverage on your deposits uh, through the Fed. Yeah. Okay. Um, lot to untangle there. Maybe next yeah. week in the podcast, we can talk about what this all means for lending and economic activity. Because by then, I think we get the senior loan officer survey data, right, uh, Marissa, from the Fed? Mm-hmm. It's Monday. Yeah. Next week. It's on yeah. Monday. Okay. And that's a survey of loan officers at, at banks. And we get a better sense of how they're thinking about underwriting and how aggressively they've tightened their standard, which obviously is key to loan growth, which is key to economic activity. But we'll come back to that. I want to play the game. And then I want to come back and talk about the debt limit uh, a bit because that's now top of mind. And then we'll call it a podcast. But let, let's play the game. Does that sound okay? Does that sound like a fair? Okay. Um, Marissa, uh, tradition has it that you go first. I don't know who who set that tradition. I mean, I'm, I, I think you believe did you did. Did I do that? Okay. I think well, you did that. I think it's. I like the tradition. What do you think? I like it. It's good. You're you're actually. It's good, it's good for me because then it reduces the odds that someone steals my statistic oh, during the game. That is oh. a reasonable. So point. I like that. Yeah. yeah, and you're so good at this game. I mean, see, I want I want you to put your hands up though during the game like this. You got to do this. No hands. I don't want any hands down here. I'm not. Uh, hey, I, <laughs> I'm just saying I, you're. I, I do you not are do really that. good. You are yeah. so good. You're so good. You're really good. Okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna play hardball today. 
Okay, I'm I'm in the game. What does that mean? Week. Oh, that boy. means I'm going to win. Is what it means. Uh, the game. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, what it means is I'm going to lose miserably. But uh, we'll give it a shot. Uh, okay. All right, Marissa, you're up. Okay. Uh, my statistic is four point seven percent. Is it in the jobs report? Yes. Is it uh, payroll survey based? No. Household, there must be household survey base. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, is it a percent of labor force? The 4.7? Is it a demographic? Yeah. Hold on yeah. a second. She didn't yeah. answer that question. Yeah, it is a percent of the labor force. Why, why did you pause? Unemployment rate. It's an unemployment rate. Oh, African American. Yes. Oh, oh okay. He's, he's oh, looking I'm it up. Way. I can tell he's looking it up. Oh, what? No. oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, oh, four, seven. Is that a new low? New to, new that is. Month? So that's the, that's the unemployment rate for blacks and it's the lowest it's ever been. And the data goes back to Whoa. 1954. Wow. It's been, it's been trending lower. And if we also look at the participation rate is 63%, which is high. I mean, it's, it's the highest it's been in, you have to go back to um, like the late 2000s, I think, to see, um, or I'm sorry, the late 1990, 2000 period to see a participation rate that high. So the gap between the white unemployment rate and the black unemployment rate is the lowest now that it's ever been. It's under two percentage mm. points. And then this is also, if you look at Hispanics too, it's not quite an all-time low, but it's it's near there, and the data there also goes back to the '50s. So, all demographic groups are looking pretty good. This goes to the high-intensity labor market, right? I mean, this high-intensity meaning the labor market is tight. We're full yep. employment. We've been there now for at least a year, uh, and it's drawing uh, everyone in, including mm -hmm. uh, groups that are have historically been kind of on the periphery of the labor market. They're now, they're in, they're fully in. And this yeah, is- Yeah, and wage growth too, right? Yeah. Drawing people in. This is one of the, this is one of the uh, key benefits of having a, a labor market like this because mm -hmm. you are now bringing people in that typically have a hard time staying into the labor market. Yeah. That's a great statistic, a very good one. Um, uh, do you want to go next? Yeah. Okay. Um, negative 2.7%. Negative two point seven percent in the in the job report. No. Oh, okay. No, a, lot of, a lot of good data this week, so I went. Uh, there went was off. a lot of good data this week. Uh, is it from is the it, Jolts? It is not Jolts. No. Is it labor market related? It is. Yeah. Oh, it is. And is it a government oh, release? productivity? Ah, right? uh, there you go. Yeah. I was waiting. I was taking Ooh. a shot directly at Chris, so I was. I was waiting yes, for him. I got to, it. Get going. I got it. <laughs> Chris is on fire. Way to go, Chris. Yeah. So, so okay. So explain, Dante. So productivity growth was down 2.7% in, in the first quarter. Um, that's, you know, the stat really, I think is more important is if you look over a slightly longer time horizon, since it's pretty volatile quarter to quarter. Uh, if you look at the average since the end of 2019, it's 1.1% now over the last, whatever that is, three and a half years. Um, and if you compare that to the the two years leading up to the pandemic, the average was 1.8%. So we've gotten a lot of volatility and productivity since the pandemic, but you know, all in all, it's averaged out to basically 1%, which is 
you know, pretty significantly lower than it had been in the two years leading up to the pandemic. I think um, he's cherry picking dates, Chris. It sounds correct. like it. Yeah. He's cherry picking dates. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even if you go back further blah, you know, blah, blah, before blah. the pandemic, you, you know, a little bit lower percent if you make the average a little bit wider, but. You know, from since 2019 Q4, it's only 1.1% average productivity growth. So I calculated, I calculated it over the past three years, 2023 Q1 to 2020 Q1 being the start of the pandemic, and it's 1.2% per annum. And okay. I go back the previous three years, I thought it was like 1.5% per annum. Yeah, I think if you go a little wider yeah. on the back end, it, it gets a little oh. bit. Um, so three, so yeah. year, three years since the pandemic hit, three years prior to the pandemic, it, it's a little bit on the soft side recently. Uh, you know, I, I think goes the output is definitely weak. GDP growth is slowing. Output growth is slowing. But as we can see in the labor market, the businesses do not want to lay off. They 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 they're not they're not interested in reducing their payrolls, despite that. So it's kind kind of cutting into productivity. So, but you're you're a productivity growth skeptic. That's the point here. Correct. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. long been, yeah. I mean, I've been on the, uh, yeah, the low end of where I think productivity growth is headed here over the next few years, I think is not a whole okay. lot of room. I, since I got you, uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question I'm getting like with every day. Okay. What about AI and machine learning? You know, isn't that going to like upend the things? I mean, the, the productivity gains here could be enormous to the degree that this is almost dystopic. We're going to have not a tight labor market. We're going to have way too much unemployment out there. How do you respond? What do you think? How do you think about that? And how, how would you respond to that kind of concern? I think my response always, you know, whenever I'm thinking about productivity growth and somebody mentions a specific technology, my answer is always that it's going to take a lot longer than you think for that actually to play out in terms of productivity growth. You know, so if you're asking me about Productivity growth in 2030, you know, maybe AI plays a significant role in productivity growth then. I don't think over the next couple of years, and I think if anything, a big disruptive technology like that has the potential to reduce productivity growth in the near term, right? Because you have lots of companies expending energy and man hours trying to figure out, does this work for me? And for a lot of them, it probably doesn't. And they just wasted, you know, how much time and effort trying to figure out if if they could get some lift out of it. So I, I think if anything, it's probably a headwind right now. I saw Marissa smile. Marissa, is that? <laughs> we got some experience with home. this, don't we? <laughs> don't we? That, that, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, we have our own experience here. That and just like other companies that are trying to see if there's benefit and maybe not finding it right away, and that doesn't guarantee you won't find some eventually. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm confident we we will. But it's as to your point, it's not straightforward. It, you you got to work at it, and it's going to take some time. And in the meantime, it's a bit of a distraction, actually, right? Because you're trying to yeah. figure it out. And yeah. usually, even when there's a disruption with a major technology like the internet, right? It yes, it will destroy some jobs, but it will also create a host of jobs that we can't even envision yet. That goes along with that to support that. Um, but to Dante's point, that takes a long time to play out fully. So Chris, you're the productivity proselytizer, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Evangelist. So yes. The evangelist. That's, that's the word, the evangelist. Uh, so so how do you react to, to Dante's uh, punch to the gut here? Or maybe the poking poking he's poking the bear here I, he, I he definitely it. poked the bear right yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah it's a short-term phenomena right if you look at the longer term 
these technologies. We haven't even figured out how the smartphone, right, really enters the economy, how we productively uh, use it in all of its different ways, new apps being generated every day. So I, I think uh, there's a long runway here. So yeah, you're right. If you're just going to look at the next six months, sure, but... Did you Look guys a little, ever further, bet? a little farther out, Dante, and uh, things will, things will pick do you, up. Do you guys have a dollar bet on this? Is that, I can't remember because uh, Dante, I'll just say don't don't bet them. Just don't no. do it. What's yeah, the you, bet? Whatever it is, don't do it because <laughs> so over a ten year period. Because we do that. Yeah, right. so, so, so you're going to pay each other a dollar in ten years. <laughs> yes. Well, no, and actually, we never pay. We have learned. <laughs> <laughs> I, def I'm I definitely never pay. I definitely never pay. Yeah. Can we put an inflation clause on the dollars? At least worth something. Right. Like no. No. Escalator. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Uh, okay, Chris, you're up. I'm up. Uh, let me find it here. Uh, Six point four percent. Six point four percent in the jobs numbers. Is no. it an unemployment rate? Oh. No. Oh. It is is it labor, labor market, market related? It is not labor market related. I'm mm. going oh. off the script here. You're going off script. Uh, it did come okay. out this week. It did come out this week. Uh, is it housing related? It is. Oh, uh, what came out in? Oh, can't you're not going back to that Fannie MBA Mae. mortgage? mortgage no, apps? no, no. The no. Fannie Mae survey, that kind of thing. That's no. a good one, but no. no. Construction no. spending, something with construction spending. That was early. No, no. No. It's not mortgage apps. No. Uh, no house prices is not house price related, is it? No. No. Um, this is one of your. Oh, oh it's housing it vacancy the... survey. It's the rental vacancy rate. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, oh I beat, and I know I had to sneak that in before. <laughs> got it. No, you know what? I, I was going to say it's the mortgage rate, the prevailing mortgage rate. Oh, oh that's a good one. That. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a really good one. But, uh, Oh, the rental vacancy rate, right? Yeah, that's right. So go ahead. That was a great. That's a great, great statistic. Go ahead. It's up, um, right? So obviously, rental vacancy rate percentage of uh, rental units that are vacant, unoccupied. Um, it climbed up to six point four. Had been five point eight percent in Q four as a quarterly number. So it is. That's a pretty sizable jump um, for one quarter, and it does, to my mind, point to some of the softness certainly in um, in the housing market in terms of affordability, people pulling back in terms of uh, forming new households and occupying new rental space, as well as new supply coming on. We've talked in the past about this very large uh, number of uh, multifamily units that's under construction. So this, uh, this rise in the vacancy rate certainly puts some downward pressure on rents. That's a good thing for consumers as well as for our inflation outlook. So that's a positive. I guess the negative would might be on the CRE prices, commercial real estate prices, and what that means for banks. But yeah, yeah, depends on your perspective. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, data in that report, that housing vacancy survey. Um, the homeowner here. Okay, bonus. Uh, what is the homeownership vacancy rate? Oh, the homeowner. Oh, I got it right. In front a, a homeowner. I should say the home. Sorry, the homeowner, the homeowner vacancy, vacancy rate is point eight percent. Oh, you got it right in front of you. Okay. It's in the uh, same release, Mark. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the home ownership rate, that's the percent of households that own their own home, is 66%, right? On the nose. Am I mm -hmm. interestingly, though, that goes up, that goes down, but for the last 50, 60 years, it's it's basically unchanged, right? 
Well, when it got up to 70, then it... It was too high, I guess. Unsustainable. That's the crisis. (laughs) That was the crisis. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm saying... It feels like it's kind of... Right. No matter how we try, whatever policy you put in, doesn't matter. It's still 66%. Yeah, one way or the other. Interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, Should I go? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hear it. And... As I want to do, I, I don't stick with one number. I give uh, multiple numbers that are related. That's a hint. So ready? 4%, 1.2%, and 2.5%. What do you think? Are they give from you a hint? the employment report or no? Not from the employment report, but labor market related. Okay. From a release that came out in the past week. Four percent was the first one. Yes, that's a quit rate, right? Oh, you're on, you're barking up the right tree, but you. So it's jolts. It's it's job opening labor turner survey. So uh, the quit rate is two point five percent. Oh no! Oh, it's four million. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what's four point oh four percent? Is that the openings rate? That's the hiring rate. Hiring rate. All right. And what's the 1.2? This should be easy. Layoffs. 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 Right. And uh, this is a rate. So it's the number of, let's say, hires as a percent of the labor force is 4%. And the reason I, I picked this was those percents, those rates are consistent with what pretty much with what they were pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, labor market was tight. We had a hiring rate of 4%. We had a layoff rate of 1.2%, and we had a quit rate of 2.5%. So we're, we've come full circle. We're back kind of sort of where we were pre-pandemic consistent with that tight labor market. The one thing that stands out, and you mentioned it, was the number of unfilled positions. There's still That's still very elevated, but that's coming in really fast. So the peak in the number of unfilled positions was 12 million. I'm rounding, obviously, back a little over a year ago, we're now at 9.5 million, 9.6 million. And pre-pandemic, it was 7.5 million. So, you know, almost, it feels like the labor market is, you know, I think that's the, the, the kind of the theme that came out of today's jobs numbers is normalizing. It's getting back to something that's more typical after obviously being completely upended by the, the pandemic and, and to some degree, the Russian war in Ukraine. So, uh, th- that, so what do you think? Re- reasonably good. St- I know this hard, but you know, not not too bad. Okay, uh, let's uh, uh, end the conversation around uh, the debt limit. And uh, as I said, I was in uh, Washington this week and at the Senate Budget Committee testifying, and we've done a lot of work in this area. And I just want to lay out um, because you know the other question I'm getting every day now, other than AI machine learning, is How's this debt limit thing going to be resolved? Now, just exactly what is the kind of the path forward? And I want to kind of lay out my uh, thinking on that and get reactions and see what you guys think. And uh, as you know, Bernard Yaros does a lot of good work here. We've identified that the so-called X date, the date when the Treasury runs out of cash necessary to pay all of the government's bills on time, is June 8th, June 8th. Uh, it could be as early as June 1, but by our calculation, the treasury will have just enough cash to squeeze by and pay all the bills. And 
June 8th. And if June 8th is not the date, uh, and there's some possibility that it's not, it could be as late as August 8th. So the, the X date, uh, whose birthday? My birthday. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, well, we really don't want it to happen. The treasury runs out of money. We really don't want that to happen. Yeah. Although I will remember your birthday forever. If that, eight, eight, eight. that's uh, auspicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Why? Why exactly? Is it? Why is that? You know, auspicious. In, uh, I think eight is a uh, is a beautiful number in um, in China in Chinese. Uh, You're making that up. Not. That's why the Olympics was to 888, right? Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah. Forgot about that. Okay. Right, Marissa? You should know, right? It is a lucky number. Yeah. Yeah. It is yeah. a lucky number. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Why are you being so coy? I'll take any any gifts oh. that when anyone wants to send my way or good wishes. On August 8th. August 8th. I, I will. August I tell 8th. you now, I'm going to remember that forever. Yeah. The August 8th birthday. I can't even remember my own birthday, but I'll definitely remember <laughs> your birthday. Um, where was I? Oh, August, August 8th would be the latest. Yeah. uh, June 8th is the uh, X date. So here we are, you know, May the 5th, uh, we got about a month, uh, you know, how's this going to play out without disaster, without, uh, lawmakers not increasing or suspending the debt limit, uh, in time we get up uh, to June 8th and we breach it. Uh, someone doesn't get paid. I, I will say, I don't think there's any probability that bondholders will not get paid, at least not initially. Uh, the Treasury has the ability to cut checks to bondholders uh, through the f- so-called Fedwire. The rest of the checks are cut through a different accounting system, and I don't think the Treasury has the ability to prioritize or change that around. Uh, the it's just too difficult from a, you know, a programming perspective, but. They can't pay the bondholder, so so they will pay pay the bondholder. But uh, it'd be complete chaos, you know, if we got to that point in time. So that's not our baseline. The baseline is slow economy, weak economy, but no recession, and that's not consistent with breaching the debt limit. If we breach the debt limit, we're going into recession. It's going to be that chaotic. Uh, so what's the path forward here? What is the political, the viable political path forward to increasing the debt limit, suspending it before we breach? And my, my thinking is that uh, law, lawmakers will, and they meet next week, uh, President Biden's meeting with uh, House Speaker McCarthy and others, that uh, out of that meeting subsequently, I don't think it happens immediately after the meeting, but in the next week or two or three, lawmakers decide to suspend the debt limit and allow the treasury to continue to issue debt to pay the bills. Maybe they kick the can down a month, uh, but then they'll kick it down another month and another month and they'll take it all the way to the end of the fiscal year, fiscal year 2023, which ends at the end of September. And the, the reason they'll do that is because they want to line up the decision around increasing the debt limit to the decision around uh, the fiscal year 2024 budget and funding the government and avoiding a government shutdown, which would happen on October 1. And so, and by so doing, they can uh, pass uh, legislation together, uh, which would increase the debt limit. And my sense is that the agreement would increase it for uh, enough to extend it to the other side of the presidential election. They don't want to, they don't want the 
the debt limit to get in the in in the in the middle of the presidential election process because that would be a complete mess. Uh, and at the same time as increasing the debt limit, they also increase they also pass a piece of the legislation that funds the government uh, going into next year, fiscal year twenty twenty four, and both uh, sides can declare. Uh, uh, rhetorical political victory, uh, the House Republican, because in that budget, I'm assuming that there will, that's fair game. That's, that's, that's appropriate to discuss spending levels and uh, taxes and the composition of spending. That's all fair game. And now that will come some uh, additional spending restraint uh, relative to the current uh, the budget. And so the House Republicans can declare victory. They can say, hey, look, well, we uh, were able to rein in government spending, at least to some degree. And the president can declare victory by saying, uh, look, uh, we passed the uh, an increase in the debt limit that was separate from this budget negotiating process. So I got a clean debt limit increase. Both those things can happen. We can keep both those things in our mind uh, uh, politically, rhetorically, and you know, life goes on and we, we move forward. Well, one last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll turn it back to the group and see what you think, uh, is that I don't think this happens uh, without uh, some real financial market turmoil. I think we're going to see some pretty dark days dead ahead where the stock market's going to be under extraordinary pressure. Uh, we'll see some gapping out of credit spreads in the corporate bond market. Um, treasury yields, I'm not exactly sure what happens there. But corporate spreads will widen. The dollar might come under some pressure uh, in this period. But it, it it's in that uh, turmoil, uh, in in all that red that people see on their screen that generates the political will necessary to go down the path I just described. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be painless. It's going to be painful. But at the end of the day, they're going to get this done before we breach. And the pain that we suffer isn't going to be enough to push the. It's going to hurt the economy, but it isn't going to undermine it the point that we get uh, into recession. Okay, I, I laid out a, a pretty arduous path there because it is pretty arduous. What do people think? What do people think? It, it, I'll turn to uh, you, Dante, first. Do you have a view on this? I'm not a strong view. I mean, I agree that I don't I don't see a situation where we actually breach the debt limit. I mean, you know, how we get from point A to point B I, seems like it's going to be a bit murky and not clear cut and there's not going to be a, a swift resolution. So, I mean, you're, the idea that this is going to get kicked down the road, the, the fall is not surprising, I guess, to me. And it seems reasonable that it's going to take a while to come to some resolution. And, you know, hopefully they can come into an agreement where both sides can claim some sort of victory and, you know, save face. But ultimately we get done what needs to get done. So I, I think that makes sense to me. Um, you know, it'd be nice if it didn't have to go that way to get to a resolution, but it's not always the case. So you kind of sort of buy into the scenario. Yeah, I don't have yeah, any reason. Because there's not a better, you can't think of a, a more likely path. Not given the current environment, no. I mean, I think yeah. there's there's a much easier path that is not a realistic one, but I, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Chris, I'm, I'm holding you at, at bay here because I, I sense a different perspective. So I'm going to go to Marissa next. Marissa, what do you think about that path? I think that seems the most likely path. Is the administration still pursuing this constitutionality of the debt limit? Uh, Well, you mean like the 14th Amendment, you mean? Yeah. Oh, invoking the 14th Amendment, saying that uh, that's 14th Amendment of the Constitution. There's a clause in there that 
kind of sort of suggests that they might be able to continue to pay uh, issue debt on the other side of the debt limit because if they don't then they're not meeting the requirements of the 14th amendment uh i don't know that they're they're certainly not officially looking into that i i would assume their lawyers the lawyers in the white house are looking at it it's a possibility uh, but that's that's a that's a possibility if things got crazy and that and we actually did breach but that's a pretty uncertain path right because that would go to the supreme court who knows yeah, how the supreme court would take roll. a long time right could take like a while too, and yeah. during that period it would be pretty messy i would think enough to push us into recession um okay chris what do you think i think what you've laid out is a very rational logical approach but um there's the political element here and i think you do have this damn the torpedoes contingent of the republican party that is going to make this much messier. Um, so I would say we're we're likely not to breach. That's still my baseline as well, but I think we're going down to the wire. And so, so you and I and Bernard Yaros wrote a paper yeah. going down the debt limit, what was it called? Debt, going hole. down the debt limit rabbit hole. And we uh, laid out these different scenarios. And the if you add up all the scenarios where we uh, breach the debt limit, it adds up to we assigned a probability of 5% to all those possible scenarios. And that's everything from they breach for a day or two, uh, uh, financial markets lose their mind, they reverse course like they did with TARP, the bailout plan back in the financial crisis, sign on the dotted line and we move forward to we breach and it takes them weeks to resolve and increase the debt limit. And obviously that's a much darker scenario. And if you add up all of those scenarios, we attached a 5% probability to that 95% probability to something consistent with I, what I just articulated that it's going to be messy, but at the end of the day, it gets done before there's a breach. Does that 5% sound right to you at this point? I'm a little bit more uh, pessimistic, Pe more pessimistic. Uh, okay. We go down to the right. And mistakes are made, right? Yep. That there, there's this big game theory going on. You game, game of chicken that's going on here. And, you know, a false move there could could certainly push us over the edge. I don't know that we the prolonged breach scenario is certainly a possibility, but a more likely scenario if we did breach is that it would be relatively short lived, right? Financial markets really do crater. You know, angry constituents are calling their Congress people, and you know, finally they put together some deal. So I think that's more likely than the extreme. You know, this drags on for months or weeks at, at a time. Um, I, I guess what I worry about, I, part of your um, your argument here is that we do need a financial market meltdown of some sort, or at least some. Yeah. I worry that, that there may be some complacency built into the system here, right? Investors mm -hmm. expecting things to, to work out. So you don't actually get that uh, that decline that you would need to trigger the reaction. So there's, again, another game theoretic argument here. And that's what may cause this to go right down to the wire. Mm -hmm. One thing that gives me a little bit of uh, solace is uh, there are cracks developing in the financial system, right? You can see it in short-term treasury yields on short-term treasury securities. Are they very near, very short, short, short one month, the yields have fallen as security relative to where they were a month ago. Uh, as investors are 
uh, thinking, oh, I, I will get paid in the next month. The, the, the X date is, you know, although that's coming to an end here pretty quickly because we're running out of days. Uh, and you can see it in CDS, credit default swap. That's the kind of the insurance premium. You can, you can go out and get insurance against the default on the treasury bond. You have to pay a premium. That's called the C, uh, credit default swap uh, spread. And that's now very wide relative to historical standard. It's not a very liquid market, so hard to read a lot into it, but nonetheless. And you can look at kind of look at treasury yields around these different uh, X dates that we described earlier. They they kind of jump at those points. So so investors are starting to take it in, uh, at least in the money markets. So some some souls there that we're not completely complacent, but I hear you. Uh, maybe you need yeah, a, you need a you know, you need a lot of red on the screen, I think, to get lawmakers to move. Yeah. What are you thinking in terms of the amount of red? Because there's a lot of red already because of the banking crisis, right? So in investors' well, minds, they might not be separating I think, out these two effects, right? Yeah. I think the model's 2011, the last time we had a pretty ugly debt limit battle. And I think there was a day or two, the market was down on the Dow a thousand points, you know, something yeah, like that. Okay. So... So you bring that real, you know, the, and the Dow was a lot lower back in 2011. So right. we could be down 2,000 points, you know, to, right. to provide okay. context. So something like that. Yeah. Something pretty serious. Yeah. Okay. Which then leads to, well, isn't that going to undermine confidence? And wouldn't that push us into recession? And so I think it's going to be, feel very uncomfortable here, you know, for the next few months. Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, I don't think I want to go down the path of, uh, and the conversation that we have in the past asking probability recession probabilities, should I, or you want to just hold that off? It's already getting, getting to be a long podcast. What do you, what do you think, Marissa? Should we? Uh, well, well I was just looking at our, our poll results. Oh, far, let's do that. that. Let's end with morning. the, what the rest of the gang thinks. We had a macro <laughs> meeting this morning, macro meaning U S macro. We all get together and, uh, talk about the outlook and uh, the underlying assumptions in that outlook, including what we thought about the debt limit. And we have been asking uh, uh, participants in that macro meeting what they think the probability of recession. What's the question exactly? Probability of recession over the next year? Um, I think that's what it is. Can you tell? The next 12 months. Yeah. Next 12 months. Yeah. What's your subjective probability of recession in the U.S. over the next 12 months? Okay. I, I was going to say maybe we can all guess what that is, but that's like taking taking it too far. So what is it? What is what does the group think? Well, there's no majority, but the plurality. So 47 percent of respondents so far have put it at 50 to 60 percent, which I think is where most of us are. Mark, yeah. maybe are you under 50 percent? I'm under 50. You yeah. are okay. Next yeah. 12 months was the question. Next 12 months. Oh, next 12 months. So, oh, right. Yeah. right. It could be 50. It could be 50. Yeah. 50%. Yeah. yeah. Pretty. Yeah. You're right. I'd probably be in that group. Yeah. What What about the one below that? The so then the next highest response yeah. was 60 to 70%. 21% oh, okay. of people said that. That's then Chris. it was 40 to 50% at 15%. Okay. What What and, was the 60 and to 70? one person said 10 to 20%. Oh, <laughs> God, I'd like to know who that is. <laughs> That's probably Dante. I'm, I'm I don't think so. I'm not that optimistic. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder who that is. Uh, uh, that that should be a part. That should be a game for next time. Who 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 that is? We'll invite him on. 
oh, that's a good idea. They'd have to fess up. This is an yeah, anonymous is, poll. Yeah. I know they'd have to fess up, but yeah, you know, that, that would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, it maybe. would be interesting. Yeah. It would be interesting. Anyway. All right. Anything else, guys, before we call it a, a podcast? Going, going. Okay, gone. All right. We're going to call this a podcast. Uh, I hope you thought it was useful, enjoyable, and we will talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye.